everybody. Welcome to Narrative on a Tuesday night. I am so excited about tonight's show. We're going to be talking about the Council for National Policy, which sounds like the most boring topic in the world, but I guarantee you it's not. The CNP is one of the most important forces in American politics in uh, right now and has been for the last uh, maybe even 40 years. And we're going to learn a lot more about it tonight from Ann Nelson, who wrote the book Shadow Network. Uh, hi, Ann. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are, how are you all? I'm great. And uh, Dave Troy's here, a uh, systems analyst who's been doing a lot of great work on Twitter. You guys have been seeing his work on, on everything from QAnon to uh, CNP. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Zoe. It's great to have you back on. LB is here. She's in the chat rooms. She's taking your questions and comments to make sure they're, they're good. And uh, we'll get to her in about 15 minutes and get to hear from you, from you what your questions are. To, from your, what your questions are. So tonight is exciting because the CNP is one of these secret forces in, in the whole thing that elected Donald Trump. I mean, it's been my, con my contention, at least, that the uh, American system and the American democracy was attacked uh, from the outside, specifically by Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Israel. But of course, that doesn't account for 75 million votes that voted for Donald Trump or the rest of the base, which we've re been referring to for the last four years while his administration was in power. And that's because, of course, there is a large following for uh, Donald Trump, and this extreme right wing has existed for a long period of time. And it's largely due to the secret organization called the Council for National Policy. Now, Anne, you really exposed what the CNP is all about. Why don't you tell us um, what it is? The Council for National Policy was founded in 1981 by a group of political strategists who had come out of the Goldwater campaign some religious fundamentalists who were trying to promote ways to keep segregated institutions on a tax-exempt status, and people from the fossil fuels industries who wanted to eliminate environmental regulations and pay as few taxes as possible. And they were very frustrated because after the New Deal, the left had a coalition, liberals had a coalition, and they didn't have an effective coalition, so they studied trade unions and church activists and and progressives and they replicated a lot of their strengths on the right uh one of their architects paul wyrick made a manifesto that said we need to create structures on in seven areas the uh, education entertainment government business etc and take over the culture so they spent 40 years trying to do that it's an interesting um alliance, I guess, of media, of big business, and power. I mean, that sort of doesn't exist on the left. But on the right, there is a secret, uh, you know, organization, not so secret anymore, that combines all those elements in one. So in other words, if you want to get a message out to, uh, you know, all of your base, it's quite easy to do when you have thousands of TV stations, sorry, radio stations, you have a few TV networks, you have uh, all your all your pieces, all your soldiers in one coordinated army. Um, that doesn't exist on the left, or does it? No, not remotely. They've got a leadership institute that trains individuals, and we just found out that one of the people they trained was Ali Alexander from mm -hmm. the January 6th Capitol riots, mm -hmm. as well as something like 200,000 other political candidates and campaign managers. Uh, they have a network of fundamentalist churches which promote their voting policies among the congregations in amid religious services. So they're very active in enlisting religious communities for political purposes, even though that is very 
probably in violation of, of uh, tax laws. Right. So they also have a network of communications. They have Christian broadcasting. They have right-wing radio shows. And now they have this proliferation of online platforms, mm-hmm. which all have this unified messaging that get out the vote in critical states at critical moments uh, and, and can actually swing the elections in our very oddly configured political system. You, you've mentioned the judges a little bit, but also the, the, the impact on the, ju- the judicial, judicial system has been quite remarkable, um, especially on the Supreme Court, where they've had three Supreme Court uh, confirmations uh, of justices there. That's a huge win for them, obviously. They've got the circuit courts uh, and the courts of appeal in the Supreme Court. And under Trump, they were able to ramrod over 200 lifetime judiciary appointments through. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. is well on the way of transforming our legal system. And what's the goal behind that? I know we'll talk a little bit more about Stop the Steal and some of that a little later on. But what's the goal of having so many judges? Uh, what, what does it do for them? Well, they come out of organizations whose heads belong to the Council for National Policy. So you've got the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, and the National Rifle Association, who've been very influential in these appointments. And they want judges who will rule in their favor. And the, I believe that what drives them is money. So the environmental regulations are a big target. Tax law is a big target. They also want power. So that works through voter suppression and gerrymandering. And their window dressing, I believe, uh, in, involves religious issues. So they packaged issues like abortion in a very misleading and dishonest way. But they push that through in order to gather this popular support from the fundamentalist churches. So you think they're willing to give up democracy for money? Do you think that's as simple as that? I think in their minds they represent democracy, uh, but they're a shrinking minority in mm. this country. And a lot of what of the issues that they espouse run directly counter to the majority of public opinion. So they have to figure out how to game the system. And again, our political system is very intricate and not always... Uh, it's certainly not one man, one vote. Far right. from it. We've got an electoral college, we've got a Senate, we've got many anti-democratic institutions, and they have worked at gaming them to the point where they can assert minority rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a great quote, uh, it's great only because it's very, uh, refer- very um, speaking the, the quiet part out loud, um, that Pete Sessions once said, if the purpose of the majority is to govern, the purpose of the minority is to become the majority. So Pete Sessions, a former congressman for the, uh, for the Republican Party, obviously their goal is not to become a, a big tent. Their goal is to do whatever they can to make sure that their minority stays in power. And that seems to be the goal that they're chasing um, through the CNP and through other institutions. Now, Dave, you've done some interesting work about the origins of the CNP, because um, some of it comes out of, of the intelligence services. Yeah, it's sort of a complicated story, um, and there's a lot of different through lines that you can kind of pick to study how this came about. And, you know, a lot of this comes from reading Anne's work. But in addition to that, um, in the mid-1970s, there were a lot of concerns about the overreaches within the intelligence community, specifically uh, things that the CIA and Army intelligence were doing to monitor Americans, things that the FBI was doing. 
uh, with relation to the civil rights movement. And so, uh, this is right out of, after Water, Watergate, really. I mean, that was sort of the really, the yeah, thing that parallel to Watergate. Time. Yeah, yeah. So there was a thing called the Church Commission that was put into effect uh, in the like 1973, 1975 timeframe that studied what the intelligence community had been up to. And, um, you know, there were a lot of different things, you know, illegal, well, let's say extra legal uh, assassinations and various kinds of monitoring of Americans. And so uh, they put into effect a variety of new restrictions in the form of executive orders and probably some laws and things like that, that basically restricted what the intelligence community could do in terms of monitoring Americans. And so this created a, something of a rift within um, the CIA and the intelligence community where the, you have to remember that a lot of the folks that formed the CNP were really concerned about fighting communism. So they were concerned about fighting the USSR and China. And they had the opinion that a lot of this restriction that was happening within the intelligence community was coming about due to communist infiltration, which they mostly pinned on the Democratic Party. Mm. So, um, you know, they felt as though there ought to be the opportunity to continue doing this kind of monitoring, but they would have to do it extra sort of, you know, legally and, and outside of the overview of Congress. So they started, um, there's a guy named Larry McDonald, who was a congressman out of Georgia, actually represented much the same geography as what Marjorie Taylor Greene represents now. He teamed up with uh, Major General Jack Singlaub, who was a early OSS and CIA veteran, who was also a Jedberg in World War II, which is a very elite uh, sort of special forces group that was uh, in you know France in the, in the 1940s, and they started this um, thing called Western Goals, which was kind of operating like a private intelligence agency where they were yeah here's the advisory board so it included uh, such luminaries as George uh, S Patton the general who was actually a cousin of Larry McDonald's as well as Roy Cohn and. Um, Roy Cohn, of course, went on to become, uh, you know, a famous mentor to Donald Trump uh, and was part of the McCarthy uh, hearings and, and that whole situation in the 50s. Um, and then, of course, you've got in the upper right there, uh, General John Singlaub, who is just he turns up in so many different aspects of the story. But at any rate, this Western Goals Group decided what they were going to do was to harvest intelligence uh, that was no longer able to be legally harvested by the CIA and index it. And they bought a big expensive computer and they were pulling in, uh, you know, information that they had from the LAPD. They were very interested in Hollywood mm -hmm. and kind of, uh, you know, stemming the communist threat, which of course was real. You can't deny that, you know, there were various kinds of communist threats taking place throughout the 50s and 60s. But these guys took it well into the 80s. And the, the, the thing that happened was that Larry McDonald died in 1983 when the Korean Airlines 007 flight was shot down uh, over Soviet airspace. Apparently, it strayed into Soviet airspace. And so he died, and that left uh, Singlaub primarily in control of Western Goals. And Western Goals ended up being the money laundering you know, a conduit that was used to uh, take in private donations from uh, individual donors like Joseph Coors um, and Ellen Garwood and a variety of others who were funding the, uh, basically the Contra operation in Nicaragua, fighting the Sandinistas who were the 
leftist rebels that were, you know, trying to instantiate a communist revolutionary government. So, um, you know, so it was kind of, of arms length from the intelligence community. It wasn't, it wasn't entirely independent, this Western goals. Exactly. It was sort of operating, you know, I would say as kind of a puppet of some people, you know, that were previously connected to CIA, some probably within CIA. It's a giant mess. But the idea being that the congressional controls, like, the, I would say that the CIA felt as though they were getting mixed messages, because they were on the one hand fighting you know, these kinds of communist things. And then there was an amendment passed called the Boland Amendment that um, limited the ability for Congress to fund this kind of thing. And so basically they got their funds cut off and they were like, well, which is it? Do you want us to fight the communists or not fight the communists? You know, and so wow. they decided to kind of continue on on their own. But it was so. illegal. I mean, this whole thing, you know, Watergate yeah. happened, they get slapped on the wrist. There's a bunch of new uh, legislation that tells them to stop doing this stuff. And they decide to continue to do it for maybe noble reasons, but still they decided to continue. Maybe to noble it. initially, but then it kind of got weird after that. Right. <laughs> so. And all of this under George H.W. Uh, Bush as well, which is interesting. Uh, no, this was um, a, a largely under Reagan in, okay. the, in the mid to late 80s. And then ultimately it was sort of adjudicated under Bush's administration. And it was actually William Barr acting as attorney general under George H.W. Bush that, you know, rendered pardons for people like Bud McFarland and other yeah. people, Oliver North and different I mean, when uh, George H.W. was at the CIA, he's the CIA director. Oh, uh, yeah, think, well, yeah. that was in the late 70s. But yeah, yeah. it was so around that period of time when they after Watergate, he sort of decided to to take things on an independent streak, if you will, and, and start all these organizations. Um, and how did it become uh, the CNP? What happened to turn the, the Western? Um, what are they called? The Western? Western well, goals. Well, Western goals. What? How did they turn into the CNP? Well, I don't think it was so much that they turned into them as that they were operating in parallel. So there was yeah. a, a group called the World Anti-Communist League, uh, which quickly earned a reputation for anti-Semitism. And then Jack Singlaub started the, like the U.S. Council for Freedom and Democracy, I think it was called, which was the U.S. chapter of that. And then the Council for National Policy came shortly after that, I believe. And the the Council for National Policy was and Anne, you should correct me if I'm missing a detail here, but it was very much put into place to capitalize on Reagan's presidential victory and the idea that they wanted to very quickly uh, build out both short and long-term strategies to capitalize on the gains that they might be able to make at that time. And Singlaub's so 1981. role in the CNP, did he have a role or was it just a, a parallel a, a role that he's Singlaub was in on the very early stages of that. I don't know what the you know whether he was like officially a founder or whatever, but I think Anne he was very much part of that circle. I I, I think that's correct to say. He was yeah. a member. He's a member. And yeah. what what you had and and as I show in my book Shadow Network, you had the CNP at a very early stage, uh, and the executive director. Uh, raising money for the Contras and inviting the Salvadoran death squad figure, Colonel Roberto Dabuison, to Washington for an event. And and it's important to remember that, I mean, I was in Central America. I was in El Salvador and Nicaragua at this, at this time. And you had a lot of people coming through who were Vietnam alumni. And there was this sense that they'd been betrayed into losing the war in Vietnam, that the communists were on a roll, that Central America was the next Vietnam, and that they were going to win this one and consolidate the victory with Reagan because they knew 
that in terms of the culture, young people and minorities and the majority of Americans were not moving in their direction. And also remember that demographically, the military has traditionally come out of several areas, the South and the West, as well as conservative Catholic communities. So there's a lot of overlap here in terms of of interests. And the CNP was special because it brought them together and it and it and it meshed their gears so that mm. they could become operational. It's so interesting that you say they they did that together. And then um, the there's a great line in your book. Let me just pull it up here so I can share it with everybody. Um, sorry, one second. Here we go. So you said that the, uh, the Council for National Policy is an influential coalition of Christian conservatives, free market fundamentalists, and political activists, um, which is really the center of, of power for uh, for this group and for the GOP in general. I mean, the GOP is centered around everything that the CNP is centered around. Um, it's all its uh, all its policy seems to come from there. All its activism seems to come from there, and all its uh, representatives, so a lot of the representatives, are supported by the CNP. Is that a, is that an accurate uh, description? Well, it does now because they they staged what I call a gradual leveraged buyout of the GOP. Mm-hmm. If you go back even 10 or 20 years, you get people in the Republican Party like Christine Todd Whitman who are environmentalists. You get moderates who are uh, like, like Mitt Romney who, who look at different models of health insurance. So those figures have been purged and, and marginalized. And in their place, they've groomed figures like Josh Hawley. And, and Tom Cotton, who are fundamentalists and who are very much true believers who do not stray from their party line. In terms of money, because that's always comes down to money, who really backs the CNP? Who are the, the big money brokers in the CNP? It's an interlocking set of organizations and donors. Mm-hmm. Some of them are the DeVos family, as in Betsy DeVos's parents and parents-in-law and her brothers, Eric Prince. Um, they've been major donors there. They uh, run the Amway Fortune in Michigan. Uh, and the Koch brothers have been funding CNP projects. CNP donors have been funding Koch operations for many, many years. Uh, you newly have the Bradley Foundation, out of mm-hmm. Wisconsin, which has been huge and active and is funding a number of these organizations at a very high level. Then you have individual donors like Foster Fries, and he was the founding donor for the Daily Caller, which is one of their media platforms. So it's also important to realize that there's a lot of sub-organizations under the CNP. There's, you know, under, um, you know, if you look at the Coke, uh, the Coke brothers, they have, you know, various institutions underneath them, whether it's ALEC or, um, or the Freedom Enterprise, what's it called, the Enterprise, American Enterprise Institute, and they have Freedom Works. Those are all part of their world. And then uh, I guess the Mercers are involved in the CNP too. They have been. It's, they're, they're, not listed in the directories, but uh, several reputable organizations uh, have have stated that they were members and their donor patterns. You know, a lot of this work involves plowing through pages and pages of tax records and, and, and donor records. And so you see that one hand watches the other. 
Right. You have an organization like ALEC, which tries to consolidate their control over state governments in a number of states. And you see these donors coming in and funding ALEC at a very high level. The, the, the director of ALEC is a member of the CNP, and they interact with the other groups. So, so it's, it's kind of like a corporation with a lot of different levels that support each other. Right. When um, Donald Trump came on the scene in 2015, did they find him or did he find them? It was a marriage of convenience mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, something of a rogues marriage. Uh, they, their preference was for people like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, but when Cruz, when Trump won the primaries, they had a difficult choice, which was go with Trump or accept Hillary. Right. And they could not stomach Hillary. So they cut a deal with Trump, which worked out for both sides beyond their wildest dreams. Because he, he was willing to do anything for anybody. So he basically enacted anything that they wanted. Uh, and they got all their judges as well. So they, they turned into Trump fans along the way. They gave him a wish list and he was operating in the realm of pure transactional politics. Mm -hmm. You give me the votes, you give me the money and the boots on the ground. Give me your list of judges. Who cares who's a judge? Give me your list of laws to transsexuals in the Pentagon. I don't care. So he gave them every single thing they wanted and they were delighted. They were thrilled. Mm. Dave, this all sounds a little bit like the deep state to me. If uh, if you have a, a you know an organization with somewhat connected roots to to the intelligence community, and then you've got uh, you've got all this happening, it does feel like the deep state. Well, I think you know the the better way to think of it is probably long term planning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something like the CNP. Um, you have to remember who uh, you know influenced you know like Paul Weyrich. You know, he was. Um, very much influenced by William Lind, who was a, uh, you know, military, uh, you know, uh, strategist who came up with this idea of fourth generation warfare. Right. And the idea there is to basically, you know, plant the seeds that create long term competitive advantage, but also get inside of your opponent's ability to observe, orient, uh, de detect and react to things. And um, it's called an OODA loop. And um, if you can kind of move a little bit faster than what your opponent is able to kind of detect and comprehend, then you have this kind of uh, really strong long-term competitive advantage. And that was really what they were doing. So they were planting people into the culture, you know, as, as early as, you know, the early 1990s, you know, with the idea that those people would be relevant in 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that worked and they're still doing kind of the same thing now. And um, that's a very difficult strategy to kind of come up against and then counter when somebody's been thinking about it for a long time. So, um, uh, you know, this whole deep state thing, you can get into big arguments about where that came from. There's a lot of discussion that it came from, you know, like Turkey and other kinds of places where this has been, uh, you know, kind of this, the same playbook has been employed. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it's worth thinking about this in a global context that like a lot of the stuff that we're going through now is not that different than what has happened in other countries. Um, you know, even in, during the Cold War, you know, after the close of World War II, I mean, a lot of the kinds of active measures type uh, things that were detailed in like Ann Applebaum's work um, in, you know, Eastern Europe and Hungary and Poland um, and Czechoslovakia, those things, 
it's, they still work. I mean, these are really easy technologies that you can redeploy in this context. We just aren't used to seeing them. So we're kind of like, what? This is new, you know, yeah. but it's all kind of the same stuff. And yeah, we're, we're living through history again and again. I'm going to pause there and bring LB in, but uh, that sort of gives us the basics of who the CNP is or are. And uh, what we're going to do going forward in the next little segment here is take a look at how they're connected to uh, the Stop the Steal event. But first, LB, um, what are people saying in the chat rooms? Hi there, by the way. And I have a lot of people asking how close the CNP is to the family because they've seen that docuseries on, I guess it was on Netflix. Um, and so they're wanting to know about that, whether the overlaps there um, and the national prayer breakfast. Yes, there's there's absolutely an overlap and a coordination. And you see it the strongest with the executive director of the Council for National Policy, the former Ohio Congressman Bob McEwen, who is also very active with the family and the national prayer breakfast. Now, they're not yeah. synonymous. And one big difference is that in the National Prayer Breakfast and the family, you may have the random Democrat. And I have, after three years of research, never found any Democrats in the Council for National Policy. It's really been like a virus that was set on taking over the Republican Party and inhabiting it. So there, there's a difference, but a high degree of coordination. Okay, great. All right, good. And then... A specific one for you, uh, Dave, on Western Goals. Was Dixie Lee Ray ever part of Western Goals? Did you find that in your research? I do not know that name. Do you know that name, Ann? What was it again? Dixie Lee Ray. I don't know that name, no. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I'll have to look that up. It sounds interesting. Well, mark that down. Oh, I'm getting a thank you from someone. Okay. And then um, I saw this actually in... I think in the Twitter before you guys came on and then um, some in the questions here, and I think there was even email ha uh, hat tip to this. A lot of questions around Canada and Harper and whether you saw the network getting in there um, and at, at about what time you saw it in there and what, you know, for me, in some research that I did, there was this massive database um, of contacts and uh, of Canadian citizens that we could see were being used by um, these church groups connected to the CMP. So people are really wondering about Canada and Harper. I think because we have a lot of Canadian followers. So they'd love to hear about that. Absolutely. I, I used to work for CBC television and radio. So I've had a very strong um, affection for Canada. And I've been extremely yeah. concerned about um, because if you in Shadow Network, in the in one of the final chapters, I quote a Canadian pastor who's been approached by the pastors who are working on the American end of this and laying out their whole approach. And he gave a sermon that was recorded about it. And and obviously, the whole idea was that Canada replicate this approach. Then I found that the apps that were used by the Trump campaign, the Family Research Council, and various other NRA, National Rifle Association, all by the same developer, were also used by the conservatives in Canada. The same, same app template. And then recently, we had uh, a, a campaign in Canada where you had the activation of young anti-abortion activists who were going door-to-door -door canvassing in Canada during the campaign, which was an absolute parallel to how they work in the United States. So um, 
I have been in touch with various Canadian journalist colleagues begging them to undertake an investigation of this because I think that it's as great a threat to Canadian democracy as it is to the U.S. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I they're very active in Australia. They were very That's active bad, in yeah. the Brexit campaign in the U.K. Uh, with, with the Le Pen operation in France. Right. And once they find the technology that works, they replicate it with, with their alliances. Absolutely. Dave. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I wanted to add real quick that, um, yes, this is a global network. And so, you know, whatever works sort of one place, they will try to kind of cut and paste it to other countries, but the, in, specifically to Canada, the things that I've seen related to the, the networks that I've been looking at are, uh, Harper, uh, Molyneux and Ezra Levant in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's somebody mm -hmm. to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Ezra's done some mm -hmm. real damage to democracy in, in, in Canada. Yeah. The, uh, you know, there's, the machine here certainly works very hard. They, they had an attempt at launching their own People's Party, which was going to sort of meant to look like a, a Trump party. Um, that failed because it was exposed that uh, the Koch brothers, in fact, supported him, uh, but they, or that party. But there's a network that the Kochs also uh, fund called the Atlas Network, which does a lot of the work around training think tanks and think tank employees into how to become politicians. And it's been used a lot in Latin America to turn some of those countries into into these populist uh, Koch-like uh party states. And so it's it's definitely a global thing, but it's something that is actually funded directly by the Koch brothers. And it's a it's a deep threat when you think about democracy in general. There are fewer and fewer countries around the world that are democracies. If um, if Canada goes, then, you know, United States is is a little bit more lonely on the world stage. Um, there's only 8% of the world right now that is considered democratic or, or truly democratic. That's very, very small compared to what we were used to just a few years ago. Um, so definitely it's a global threat and that's something we need to focus on um, very, very carefully. Thanks, LB. We'll check in with you a little bit later and get some more questions. Okay. Thanks so much. Fix my life. I'd also <laughs> say that a lot of these operations are, are based out of Alberta and you have the same confluence of the fossil fuels industries and the fundamentalist yeah. networks in exactly. parts of the U.S. And then the Koch brothers own a lot of the oil industry up there in, in Alberta as well. They're, it may be indirectly, but they certainly own a large piece of it. So, uh, Anne, you wrote this incredible piece um, uh, in the Spectator, Washington Spectator, about, um, about the Stop the Steal event. And all the same people and uh, influences that came out of the CNP seem to be present at the Stop the Steal event on January the 6th. I'll show you everyone the cover because got a great graphic of um, of democracy or just lady liberty being stabbed in the back and you write how the cnp a republican powerhouse helped spawn trumpism disrupted the transfer of power and stoked the assault on the capital so this is quite a serious allegation against the cnp this is not the kind of stuff they'd normally be involved in they wouldn't normally be storming the capital but you're saying they in fact were involved in every piece of it that headline was negotiated for several hours in terms of the precision of language. They <laughs> stoked the assault. I don't know that they let it. Mm. But what I try to do in the piece with a, a great deal of documentation, there are many, many links, and I, I am totally transparent about the research. And I show how over a year ago, the Council for National Policy and its, and its affiliates started saying, how do we guarantee Trump wins? And they started out saying, well, we'll hope to win the popular vote. It's looking pretty good. COVID hits. Well, if we lose the popular vote, how do we guarantee the electoral college? 
that starts to erode. And as they get closer and closer to the election, their options shrink and they become more desperate. Then they say, well, uh, already in August, they're looking at the legal solutions of challenging the votes in the states where they have friendly courts that they hope can turn uh, the, the number of votes in their favor. And finally, through people who are very high-ranking members of the Council for National Policy, such as Jenny Beth Martin of Tea Party Patriots, such as Adam Brandon of Freedom Works, Charlie Kirk, Ali Alexander, who's a former member, they organized the protest of January 6th. We're still trying to find out where the line is between the protest and the assault. We, right. we you, know, you know, more investigation will be required. But what is not in doubt is that they sought to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. I took a stab at making a graphic just to explain to people all the connections here. And I may have got some of these names wrong, but if you look at this graphic, you sort of get a sense of all the different uh, entities that relate to the CNP. Now, some of these were, you know, uh, are the, uh, the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network, which may have been more involved in, in getting federal judges involved. But almost all the rest of these were in some way or another um, involved with the Stop the Steal event. And, and, and I guess Ed Martin of the Judicial Crisis Network was working with Ali Alexander when he first came up with Stop to Steal? Uh, yes, and there were various partner organizations that organized people to come and participate. There was a huge amount of activity in their areas of, of online communications. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't know to what extent, you know, what percentage of people were there because they were recruited by this network, but we know that multiple organizations organized people to come. Right. And in the case of Charlie Kirk, who's a member of the Council for National Policy, runs Turning Point USA, he had uh, buses that were filled and sent to, to Washington for the protest, and that money was found to pay for transportation and hotels. And that's so, also the case for Ginny Thomas, isn't it? The wife of Clarence Thomas. Uh, wasn't she also involved in sending buses there? Well, she has been very uh, active with Charlie Kirk's organization. She's addressed them. She's she's collaborated with him on a number of fronts. She had been on his board of, of directors. And, of course, Ginny Thomas is the wife of Clarence Thomas mm -hmm. and uh, the Supreme Court judge. And you could ask whether a Supreme Court justice's wife should be involved in operations like this. In my research, the only time we'd heard of Stop the Steal, or the first time we'd heard it publicly, was when Roger Stone went on Info... Wars. Wars, thank you. Wow. There's too much information in my head right now. And that's when he first mentioned the word Stop the Steal uh, publicly. But it actually came up earlier in the CNP, the idea of being, at least of the election being stolen and then being cheated out of a win, actually originated, we think, maybe from the CNP, uh, where they started campaigning, as you say, in August. I think Stop the Steal started well before then, and I, I don't know exactly when, but it was certainly... I think there's even evidence that it goes back as far as 2016 uh, as, as a concept. Kind of a concept. Yeah, as a concept. And then it was sort of brought out of uh, cold storage in 2020. Yeah, all the, the wheels that had to match for that to happen. You had to have a media operation going, you had to have them recruiting people nationally, regionally, you had to have them organized, you had to have the speakers set up and be on message. Yeah. So that coordination effort is really what 
what the, the biggest problem is, in my opinion. There were four main plotters, really. There was Michael Flynn, who's uh, you know, building up an army, a digital army. Roger Stone, who brought in the militia. Steve Bannon, who was sort of the strategist. And Alex Jones, who was running propaganda. Then you had Ali Alexander, which was sort of the, the guy who was involved in the day-to-day sort of operational uh, getting it together and the marketing of it. And then Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell were setting the lie that they could build all this on. Um, but there is also now other names that we could throw in because so many people at the CNP were involved. But before we leave the slide, it's important to mention as well that Michael Flynn is a member of the CNP. Uh, it was revealed by the researcher Brent Allpress that Michael Flynn was on, has, is, has been on a roster of CNP employees. That's quite something to think of the man awarded by the Justice Department so that the White House needed to fire him because he might have been compromised by the Russians, that he's working for the CNP in organizing this uh, insurrection. And he's on the same employee roster as Ginny Thomas. Um, also remarkable that uh, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice could be part of the uh, part of the CNP. This is sort of uncharted territory um, here, by the way, is, uh, is a slide of them because they work together, or at least she works as part of the CNP action. Can you tell everyone what CNP action is about? Sure. A CNP is officially a, a, a nonprofit charity organization, which is not supposed to have any role in political campaigns and therefore it's tax exempt. Uh, you could question how it earns this status. I would question it, but they have another branch which is technically called a 501c4, which is allowed to in, engage in campaigns. So she is on the board of directors of the lobbying arm of the Council for National Policy, as well as a member of the, the other organization. Which is incredible when you think that their whole setup is to get something to the Supreme Court to invalidate it, that she's being involved in that whole process seems seems remarkable. Uh, Dave, you've done a lot of work on Mike Flynn, um, and you've been on the show here before talking about his involvement in Q. So is Q uh, related to CNP? Is it part of what CNP is doing? I think that's difficult to know. Um, you know, we're trying to get to the, the bottom of that. But the one thing that I can say is that there's a high degree of overlap between people connected to the CNP and various kinds of things that we've observed in the Q, uh, you know, analysis that's been done. So, for example, uh, there were people involved uh, from Eric Prince's group and Eric Prince's family, the DeVosses and whatnot, very tightly tied to CNP, uh, who were involved with uh, disrupting the uh, pipeline protests at Standing Rock. Hmm. Now, when we first came across this, we you know didn't quite know what to make of it because we saw several of the same people involved in that operation that ultimately went on to be involved with the QAnon operation. And you kind of go, why would there be people in 2016 and early 2017 that were connected with uh, Eric Prince's group that went on to become involved with QAnon? Hmm, that's kind of weird. So it's those kinds of overlaps, people like Lisa Clapier and Sean Stone uh, that, you know, got involved in that um, uh, Standing Rock operation that kind of paint the bigger picture. And if you recall what Ann said about the founding of CNP, you know, the, uh, some of the founding group was around oil interests and, you know, petro interests. So this has been a kind of a longstanding theme. And what we find is that, uh, you know, the people that were, fighting the Iran-Contra uh, situation, there was a group called the Christic Institute 
which is connected with the Vatican. <laughs> and the same Christic Institute morphed into something called the Romero Institute, which was fighting, uh, you know, the Eric Prince side of the equation at Standing Rock. And mm -hmm. they were intervening on behalf of the uh, Lakota peoples. So when you see these kinds of overlaps that span something like 30 years and you go, what is going on here? And oh my gosh, it's the Vatican involved and it's some of the same interests on both sides and you've got the Koch brothers in the mix. You start to realize that there's some deeper themes of history that are happening here. It's not just like one-off crazy, you know, 20, 2016 politics or 2020 politics. These are, are deeper themes in, you know, American and global history that, that you can start to pick apart and realize that, you know, the, these things persist through time. So, so you're, that's really interesting because uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the author of Strongman, was on the show last week and we, we specifically looked at, uh, at the parallels between Hitler and Trump and who, who the backers were and, and also Mussolini. And the, and the names that come up are the Koch family, who supported both Hitler in some ways and, and the Trump family, um, uh, as well as the Vatican. They're, they're apparent in both. Um, and in terms of, uh, well, the Vatican is also more apparent, so I should say, with Mussolini. And then, um, and then you get Deutsche Bank, which are also part of the story for, right. for both Trump and, and Hitler. Those are, those are you know, remarkable, really, when you think about it. There's so many banks in the world. There's so many rich families in the world. Why do these keep showing up? And do you have any guesses on why? Well, I think, you know, it's it's possible for sure to kind of go down the rabbit holes and, and come up with all kinds of interconnecting things through history. And I think one needs to guard against, um, you know, seeing connections where maybe there there aren't any, especially because, you know, over the course of 70, 30 years, you know, it's not the same people. It's different people, you know, we're not responsible for sort of the actions of our forebears and all that. But at the same time, you know, there are these kinds of themes throughout history. So, you know, if you look at who was opposing communism in like the 1970s, you know, it it was people that were, you know, more on the right. And then if you go back to the 1930s, the people that were opposing communism were also people that went on to kind of be associated with a lot of the right wing activity in Europe and Nazis and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, these these are themes that persist through history and these networks like I think Anne was really prescient to formulate her approach to CNP as a network because it is a network. And the thing you have to realize is that these networks don't just sort of instantiate like, you know, instantly in time, they persist, you know, across time. So somebody like Jack Singlau, um, who actually is now 99 years old and still alive, oh, wow. you know, he's been at this since like the late forties and it was in, you know, obviously as part of the OSS and, you know, he landed into Normandy. I mean, like this, he's in many ways a, a very, you know, uh, kind of amazing American figure, but at the same time, he also went down this, this path of, um, you know, being very, very anti-communist, which, you know, in the 1950s seemed like a reasonable thing to do. And then it kind of morphed into this more, you know, very virulent right-wing kind of persona until the point where they realized, they, they started to think that the communist threat was here in this country. And they started to fight the Democrats as if they were the, you know, the Bolshevik. Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative.